Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to Uncovered. Flying solo today. Uh, Bayram is uh, out, not, not admitted, rested, rotated, uh, traded, I suppose, uh, being uh, one of the topics we'll be talking about today. Might also be quite apt. This show leans in hard on data and technology, so we are proud to work with HCL Tech, leaders in their field. Um, I'll go through quite a few of uh, the different things that I have uh been seeing around the cricket world. Um, but I did want to start with the IPL news. I think that is uh, one of the more, uh, well, certainly these days it's weirdly very global, isn't it? Which I suppose is uh, completely on brand for this podcast. But I did find it very interesting. Obviously, Hardik Pandya has been traded for cash. Anyone who's been a fan of my work before will know that IPL teams should not be trading for cash. Um, it's a terrible plan. Uh, I don't understand why it keeps happening. But, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, trades in T20 cricket are just so often it's like you don't realize you're going to play this other team you need to take some resources even if you don't want those resources find out if any other team might want those resources players I'm talking about here get a couple of players back and then flip those players to the team who actually wants them to try and get something else out of the situation you can't just have one of the teams you're going up against essentially by the best seam bowling all rounder in India, where it doesn't matter to them. Money doesn't matter to them all by Indians. Anyway, um, I thought that was quite interesting, and I'm sure I'll be sucked into the whole trade thing again. Um, but, you know, Joff Rata is, uh, you know, while we're on Mumbai, very, very interesting that uh, they've moved on from him. Probably tells us that they, you know, I mean, they sort of set their franchise up around the fact that Joffre Archer would eventually be fit and healthy and they were willing to perhaps even lose the season waiting for him. I think they've probably lost their patience at this point. And um, like the rest of us, probably like Joffre as well, we don't know if he will ever come back consistently. Um, you know, I don't, as long as he can bowl, teams will still take punts on him. I expect him to get picked up by um, someone else. But I think we've seen that the, um, you know, I think we've seen enough to 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 be where you wouldn't want to pay a lot of money for him, and obviously he was on a big contract before, um, but he will get picked up again. It was actually um, uh, Harry Brook was another one I was very very interested in. Obviously he makes that hundred, which makes his overall T Twenty numbers, well IPL numbers, look a little bit better. But we've seen this again, uh, probably cost too much. I remember saying at the time that. Um, it was a bit. It's a big amount to play on someone who is not fully tested. I suppose that's the best way of putting it. Um, and we, we've seen that time and time again. I think it was Cameron Cameron Green just traded. 
Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Um, so uh, Cameron Green is being traded from Mumbai um, to RCB. Obviously, part of that is probably the Hardy Pandya thing as well. Again, if you were if you were a T20 franchise who was giving Hardik Pandya to Mumbai Indians, could you not have asked for Cameron Green and a couple of other players and then traded them on to RCB so that you got something else back for the trade? Especially because RCB were offloading a lot of players as well. Anyway, that's a completely separate thing. But that that's what I'm talking about when I talk about how, how bad the uh, trades are. But the point being, if you go back, especially and you have a look a little bit with, Cameron, a little bit with Harry Brook, but certainly with Cameron Green, I talked about the fact that we don't know how... He, you know, his worth is going to um, come across in the IPL. And I think in the IPL, there are a lot of teams who spend a lot of money on players that we don't actually know that much about yet. And uh, I know you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be in a situation where you miss out on the next big thing. But you do have to look at what these players have done and trial them a little bit more effectively or have better scouting reports on them and everything else. I just feel like at the moment, it's still like, this is the hot property, so we all want this player. Anyway, uh, Brooke Brooke is out, um, and um, Archer, and Cameron Green has changed teams, as Hardik has. So I think I've named all of those ones. I'm just trying to think who were the other players um, on the list that I thought were quite interesting. Um, I I mean, RCB seems to be clearing house. We've seen this this sort of thing quite a lot. Um, Hazelwood, I think, couldn't come back because of paternal, paternal issues. So he wanted to spend some time with his family. It's quite interesting that he's doing that, actually, because he's had a pretty decent World Cup here. And he, he was desperate to get himself back into, you know, uh, the IPL and T20 franchises in general and the Australian team as a white ball player. Um, so good on him for putting his family first after doing all that hard work. Um, Harshal Patel is a really, really interesting one as well. I'd be fascinated by him. I, I think that with Harshal Patel, there's a big chance of overpaying him as a player. But really what you want to do with Harshal Patel is probably get him on a reasonable contract for as long a period as you can because he's the when you put as many revolutions on the ball as people like him and Dwayne Bravo do there are going to be down years where they just can't put the same amount of revolutions on the ball which means that you're not as useful um Hasaranga was also let go um from uh from RCB probably he's a perfect case of a, of a bowler who will probably go to a more spin friendly conditions and will do really really well the truth is that RCB in part go through so many bowlers because it's very hard place to bowl. And I don't know if they have as a franchise historically factored that in enough. Um, and it's a hard one, but kind of have to, right? It's like, it's like if Guyana got rid of every batter who averaged 28 with a strike rate of 110. Um, well, that's kind of everyone who plays in Guyana because the pitches are a bit like that. Uh, KKR, uh, they let 12 players go today. A lot of these were, um, players that I just think make sense uh, for them to move on from. Shaka Balasan, who actually I just saw just before he did this, Mohamed Issam has said that Shaka Balasan is um, contesting the 12th parliamentary elections after uh, getting a nomination from the Awami League, uh, which is the ruling party. I think I think I've got all that right. Just can't wait to see the sort of people that will vote for Shaka Balasan. Um, you know, uh, and I hope he got his nomination in on time. You didn't get that joke. Hopefully someone will explain it uh, to you later on. But um, so moving on from Shakib, I think makes sense uh, based on current form and everything else. Was probably one of the most undervalued IPL players for a long period of time, but certainly not at that level anymore. Lockie Ferguson, KKR moved on from him. I, I said when they got Lockie back, that they got him back for almost romantic reasons because when you looked at his numbers, they hadn't held up. The interesting thing is now he looks back in form and looks fit again. 
So it's an interesting time to get rid of him. Um, and I suppose the other big change that they made uh, was um, Shadul Takur. Teams have tried to make him work as a T20 player for a long time. Probably from a batting perspective, last couple of years, he's finally given you something with the bat. But his, um, his bowling is, I mean, he's the least economical bowler in the IPL and has been consistently, I think, over a long period of time. He's a smart cricketer. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me, he just hasn't worked out how to make it work consistently. Um, but, but again, you know, uh, certainly a player who will be picked up by someone else. Yeah. I just don't know how he fits into a T20 side because he's so expensive without really giving you masses of wickets. You'd almost have to have a pretty set bowling lineup where you could see how he can bowl the safest overs in while giving yourself, what, a number eight who will occasionally pinch it up the order. Um, he's, he's a, he should be more successful than he is. But I think that the, the, the price that people have paid for him has been part of the problem. He's been massively overpaid for someone who just doesn't, who needs to be, you must need to build the team around him. And then how often do you want to build a team around someone who is, you know, your eighth or ninth best player at best, right? These things don't happen all that often. Uh, who else went? Uh, Kyle Jameson uh, went from CSK. I think, again, you see, Go back. I do think Kyle Jamieson has a role to play in a T20 franchise cricket. I don't know if it's at in the IPL, just because unless you give him the absolute new ball, and teams haven't done that enough with him. I still think he he has um, some use, but he was overpaid. I, you know, well on the record of this, he probably should have been picked up a couple of years earlier than he was, and then should have been paid a reasonable amount of money, and then could have developed properly. Again, we see these players get overpaid. Um, and Jason Holder was let go by Rajasthan Royals. The, the problem with Jason Holder is, as a bowler, again, he's probably not an ideal new ball bowler. He's not even as good, certainly not as good as Kyle Jameson is. The rest of the innings, he doesn't really do a lot for you. And in the death, he could take wickets, but you would need him to be paired with someone who's an incredible economy bowler, which is perhaps the idea of having him and Obed together. Um, but Obed, with his injuries, just never could string enough games together. Um, he's been let go as well. And Jason Holder's batting is fine, but he's also not a specialist batter, right? Like you can bat him at number five, knowing that you have a slightly weaker number five or a number six or anything like that. Again, I don't think he, he should be let go altogether, all but he's a tricky player. So a lot of the guys that have, have gone on there either were in bad form um, or just not doing what they should be. There'll be a lot of recycling of those sorts of players going through. Anyway, that's the majority of my uh, my IPL takes off, off the top of my head, just having a look at it, um, you know, kind of waiting uh, to see what would happen and how it would break out. So RCB and Mumbai are probably the two more interesting, I, I suppose, Gujarat as well, uh, the three more, uh, three most interesting teams just because there's a lot of retooling that will have to go there. So be really fascinating to see how those teams go in the draft. Anyway, let's take a quick break here. And then after the break, we'll come back. It says, uh, while pressing the wrong button. Yeah, after the break, uh, we'll come back and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about... Uh, Darren Bravo is something that I think is quite interesting in the scheme of uh, of cricket uh, where we are at the moment. This is Uncovered. I'm Jared Kimber. There is no Bayram I mean, there is still a Bayram Kazi, but he's not here. Love cricket? Love strategy? Why not try Wicket Cricket Manager, the game for you? Manage your team, outsmart opponents, and lead your players to triumph. Dive into the world of dot balls and wides and experience the excitement of this elaborate cricket fantasy game on Wicket Cricket Manager. Welcome back. Yeah, I just want to talk about um, Darren Bravo just a little bit because 
we've entered a period probably since late 90s of where West Indian cricket has not been as strong as it should be. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, the old basketball myth, they're all going to play basketball. Not sure Darren Bravo uh, had much of a chance of, of doing that. Um, and, you know, me and Michelle have kind of debunked that. And I'll do a major video about it one day. I just haven't had a chance to to get involved. But, you know, the the, the really important thing uh, is that there is still talent involved in, in West Indies cricket. The problem is the development of that talent, of keeping it around, of getting it to um, reach its apex as early as it should. So, you know, me and Michelle have done a podcast about Johnson Charles, I think, which is coming up um, probably in the next couple of weeks. And you look at Johnson Charles and you look at his his key skills, you know, uh, hand-eye coordination, power, um, you know, his ability to be very skillful on the offside, but also then have this you know, big fuck off heave to the leg side whenever he needs it as well. And then you and and then you start to go through his record. You're like, well, why did this all take so long for it to develop into a player? Because he's been around the international scene for a long time. It hasn't always been a frontline franchise player. I think he was just let go by his IPL franchise as well. Um and he's probably not quite at the IPL level, um, but not far away from it at his at his absolute best. The truth is these players just aren't developing correctly within the West Indies. And I think Darren Bravo is a really good example of that. And there's many different things. I think the Bravo family have probably been seen as a little bit difficult at times. Obviously, Dwayne was involved in the um, uh, the union. Uh, well, not even the union, the strike. Um, you know, uh, so that was a part of it. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago have certainly had some problems. Obviously, Nicholas Puran is another one that they had some issues with. So there's some issues there um, uh, that come through. But the truth is that, you know, at the end of the day, it's West Indies cricket that needs to develop those players. And in uh, Darren Bravo, you have a player who has a fantastic test record, for instance, away from home. He's just done absolutely great in the Super 50 tournament over there. Not being picked again. Um, and and we're now looking, I'm just having a look, was it a 13-year professional career? Um, and it just, it's kind of what, 56 test matches. Um, what's he played in one day? It's 122 ODIs. And he averages 36 in test cricket and 30 in ODI cricket. Both of those numbers are lower than what he should uh, be producing. And, you know, as I say, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But the truth is that the same things keep happening in West Indies cricket. And this isn't someone who is getting a lot of uh, T20 major contracts or anything like that. So you can't just throw the T20 thing in. The truth is that especially when it comes to West Indian batters, although I'd say the all-rounders and spinners and the quicks also come into this at times but certainly with the batters they just don't develop and so what you usually get is when they reach their peak age so around that 27 28 period like johnson charles has they suddenly have you know a little bit of a renaissance and we all start to see them as a good news story again but then quite quickly you know they're out of the side again not long after that and with darren bravo it's way more confusing with that uh, of course he's famous for i think calling then Cricket West Indies CEO or chairman, must have been chairman, wasn't it? A big idiot, uh, Dave Cameron. Shout out to him. Probably not, you know, probably not the the least accurate thing that's ever been said about Dave Cameron. Um, but also not a not a, a great idea. But uh, not a great idea, I should say. But the point being that this keeps happening in West Indies cricket, and it's not just a T Twenty thing, and it is not just a current day thing. As I as I've said before, you go back into the history of West Indies cricket. A lot of the time, when they really developed their players, it was with the help of league cricket in England, county cricket, 
um, Kerry Packer, all those different things to allow those players to become professionals. And now that a lot of those things are now clogged up by Sri Lanka players and Pakistani players and South African players and, you know, Zimbabwean players. So it isn't just that everyone turns straight to the West Indies. You know, there are many different other players who, who sometimes get picked up. But if that's the case, how is the West Indies ever going to develop their players? When, with, when they had that, you know, great period where they were doing so well in T20, that was largely, again, on the back of a lot of those players getting picked up by leagues and becoming professional, right? The talent isn't the issue. And I think that's always the thing with, with Darren Bravo. It's going to be a very sad story. I know he's, he's recently said he's stepping away from international cricket. Actually, it might have been from all cricket. I can't remember what the actual, uh, uh, what he said exactly. But the point is that we just keep seeing these things, these trends. And the fact that it comes a week after Marlon Samuels has been suspended, uh, you know, uh, over fixing charges as well. We just keep seeing the same patterns over and over again. The inability of cricket West Indies to ever find out a structure that can actually develop their players, that can keep them happy, that can keep them on side. Um, and a lot of it is about geopolitics. And a lot of it is, you know, about the fact that they are not one place. And, you know, they are many different places. And a lot of it is about finances. But when people say, oh, you know, it's such a shame that West Indies cricket is in the state they're in, I think we need to go back and actually start to focus on we never really gave the West Indies as a cricket board never actually cashed in on the fact that they could have made a lot of money throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the early 2000s based on the heritage, the way they were marketed. They made a lot of money for Cricket Australia and uh, the ECB and probably you know even early days in the uh, BCCI. They made a lot of money for much richer cricket boards, but because of the way that cricket is structured, that money never filtered back to the people who actually should have earned it. And I'm talking about the players on the field, but also, you know, what uh, would have been WICB then, but, you know, WICB or Cricket West Indies. And it's a real shame, and I, I don't see any of that changing. And on all of that, this is slightly more upbeat or downbeat, depending on how you want to do it, but the um, uh, the African region all qualifiers for the T20 World Cup are, are going on at the moment. And you will know this most probably because you will know that Uganda has just beaten Zimbabwe. And if you don't know that, it's a hell of a way for me to just uh, drop it for you. But absolutely um, fantastic for Uganda. Uh, someone actually asked me a question on Twitter today about how did the associate teams suddenly get so good. But the truth is that associate teams have been getting good, well, you could argue, argue since Sri Lanka, right? <laughs> like since 79, you know, because straight after that you have Zimbabwe um, and then uh, then you have Kenya. Of course, of course, then you have Scotland, Ireland, Bangladesh, uh, and now we, you know, we and then Afghanistan as well. Um, the truth is the ICC also put a lot of money in. And there's also, there's also the fact that what happens is that because there are ICC events to go to, those teams that had played cricket and, you know, Uganda cricket has been involved in Uganda for a very, very long time. But beforehand, they weren't going to become get test status right or at the very least they're gonna to have to be good for a, such a long time to get test status what has happened now is there is a pathway and there is a reason for those teams to go and there is potentially sponsors potentially government money and also icc money that can that can trickle down to some of these teams trickle down maybe being the operative word so it's an absolutely great day um again for associate cricket to to be seeing um uganda beating a test playing nation of course the other side of that is that not particularly good for Zimbabwe. Um, again, very, very reliant on Sikanda Raza and, and Ryan Burl. You know, I've talked about that a lot, how reliant that team is. They're basically reliant on what? They're, 
their bowlers and their batting just isn't as strong as it, as it needs to be. But, you know, in that particular game, I think Blessing bowled four overs for 13, which is incredible, trying to trying to defend 137 in a T20 game. Uh, Engarava went uh, two for 24 from his, but uh, Tendai Chitara uh, got smashed around a little bit. Sikanda got milked maybe more than smashed, but certainly went for runs as well. Ryan Bell went for runs. Um, and they obviously needed all their bowlers to step up again in that situation. To go back to the West Indies thing, I don't think it's a problem if Zimbabwe and the West Indies continue to struggle from a sport perspective. Because at a certain point, they are going to have to work out what they are doing is wrong and if there is a better way of being able to do it. Now, they may not be. I'm not, I, I would find it hard to believe that they couldn't make a few different um, improvements in the way that they do their cricket. But overall, I think it's very, very fair to say that um, they are not in as advantageous position as some other you know, cricket nations around the world, right? Like, for instance, Ireland. The other way of looking, of, of course, of all this is that when Uganda beat a test playing nation, uh, that shows how much they are developing, how much stronger cricket is. And if you go back to what I was talking about in the T20 in ODI World Cup about how we could have had 14 or 15 sides in that World Cup without really having a proper weak team. Doesn't mean one of those other sides wouldn't have turned up and been awful, because that's always possible. But we wouldn't have had the sort of situation that we had had, like the UAE playing in 1996, for instance. You know, those sorts of things. It's incredible how quickly cricket is developing. So Uganda is a horrible thing if you're an old Zimbabwe head, 90s kid, probably. Um, but also a brilliant thing for world cricket to be able to watch that. And if Zimbabwe don't, um, qualify it will be a hell of a fall for a team that not that long ago was playing absolutely brilliant cricket um and suddenly has just completely fallen off they should have qualified for the odi world cup and they're now in a situation where you know they're losing to namibia and uganda um they've got a couple of weaker teams to come up but it's going to be hard for them to qualify from here and you know they'll probably need uh, uganda to be upset um, or something along those lines um uh for that to go forward as well uh, but just another huge moment in cricket and we've seen so many of them over recent times uh, let's take another break and then after the break uh, we'll talk about the icc's decision on trans players i'm jared kipper this is the uncovered podcast bayram is locked in my basement all right welcome back so i have a few issues with the, the icc making this um this ban and the first one would be that having followed a few other sports, and I've been really interested to see where cricket will go with this, but having followed a few other sports, um, I think probably rugby would be one, one of the, the major ones. A lot, there's been a lot of research done and a lot of science, and I don't think that the ICC has done any of that. And my worry is always when you lead with, especially for what is in cricket, let's be honest, majority old conservative men making a decision based on women's sport when most of them don't actually care all that much about the women's game anyway to begin with you know uh, th the funniest thing about well it's not funny it's pr pretty tragic but you know the, the uh, ironic thing about so many people being so upset that um, trans athletes are playing in women's sport is the fact that a lot of those people don't seem to support women's sport or follow it or care about it at all until there is a trans athlete involved um, and that's sort of what this looks like from the outside right and um you know, I would love to know a lot more, um, a lot more stuff about it. And I know that certainly, uh, what happened here was that, uh, the Canadian Danielle McGay, I think that's how you pronounce it, her name. Um, I think that's right. Um, has kind of forced the ICC's, um, 
hand a little bit here with the way that, you know, um, uh, with the decision by Canadian cricket, but this could have been a decision, you know, kind of um, anywhere. And, you know, I think we saw, um, I, I think we certainly saw that this was a um, something that was uh, forced on them, which is fine. I don't think they can really sit their heads in the sand. Like this has been a something that's been happening in professional sport for a very, very long time. And the fact that the ICC waited until a trans athlete was picked for a national team um, just shows you how reactionary they have been and how little research and how little thought they've put into it. Um, so the ICC said in a statement, the changes to the gender eligibility regulations resulted from an extensive consultation process and is founded in science and aligned with core principles developed during the review. I just don't believe any of that because if that was the case, I don't think it would have, it would have been, I don't think it would have followed directly after Canada, um, uh, picking, uh, Danielle to actually play. I just, I'm sorry. I think that's absolutely nonsense. Inclusivity is incredibly important to us as a sport, but our priority was to protect the integrity of the international women's game and the safety of the players. There is certainly, um, I'm, I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, from a scientific point of view, where I've been really interested about it is, um, that we do know that a lot of the advantages um, that um, athletes have as men when they transition to women don't actually follow over. So we know that the whole thing about the, the um, integrity and the safety of the game and all that sort of stuff doesn't matter. But there are certain things that you cannot um, that you cannot deny, right? And I say this as someone who believes trans athletes should be certainly not used as, as a political football so to speak, um, in general, which is what they have been. Let's be honest, this has become a story because a lot of alt-right people have, have used it as a story. And when you actually start to go through the numbers of how many trans athletes there are, how little impact they have on professional sports, it becomes a little bit silly. And the whole idea of LeBron James um, suddenly deciding he wants to be a woman so he can be better, it, all that sort of stuff that you hear about is almost always nonsense. And a lot of um, trans athletes, uh, you know, are not very good at the sports, um, when they transition into them. But there are things that you can't undo. And, and I'll just want to explain one for, um, cricket, which is really, really interesting. So if a player does go, um, uh, as a man does go through, um, uh, puberty and then becomes, you know, let's say six foot four or six foot five, um, or even taller than that, let's say six foot six or six foot seven. And, then they transition. Not they're not transitioning to become a professional athlete because that would be ludicrous, especially for the fact that you would probably not make any money because of what all these sports are doing. Um, although that always seems to be the fear. But if they do transition um, and then become um, a woman, what that means is that there aren't many females who actually grow to that high. And you know, having talked to female cricketers before, one reason they don't always like practicing against men is not because they like that it's the ball comes on a little bit faster and that, you know, the spinners can sometimes get more revolutions on the ball at a higher speed and all this sort of stuff. It actually helps them practice. The problem is that men, uh, especially male professional cricketers, are far taller than female professional cricketers. So there is always an advantage there. I just don't think any of that was really taken in. And I, I as I say, I don't think the ICC looked at any of that sort of stuff. We are getting, uh, certainly going to a point um, uh, when it comes to uh, professional sport where the the idea that there are only men and there are only women, I think we now know scientifically that's nonsense. This is going to sound like a huge reach, but this actually reminds me a lot of the chucking um, situation where we thought there were bowls who were chuckers and bowls who weren't chuckers. And then science sort of showed us that actually the vast majority of bowlers um, straightened their arm. Um, and, you know, no one was bowling with a perfectly straight arm. In fact, it was almost impossible to be able to bowl with that arm. 
And, you know, whether it be um, Custis Amania or the, the trans athletes, we are finding, you know, we have got all these different um, spectrums now, you know, uh, you know, players who are, uh, or athletes who are intersex and everything else. Just banning these uh, people doesn't really help. That's not going to stop uh, trans people wanting to play cricket, right? Um, and so it doesn't, act, and obviously, if you have gone through all the, the hormone um, treatments and everything else you need to go through, and, you know, I've got friends who are trans, it's horrendous, the whole thing. Like it, you ha- it's a big lifestyle um, thing and it, it affects your body in so many different ways. Um, uh, you know, it's a, hu- it's a huge thing. But these people aren't going to be able to go back and go to be able to play uh, as men uh, at the kind of level that they should be anyway. It's probably also no longer, you talk about safety um, and inclusivity. Well, they're now excluded from that and they, their safety is no longer looked at as well, which is another interesting thing that is, is not looked at as much when we talk about trans athletes. But what I'm trying to say is I really believe a little bit like the chucking conversation is we are going to find out that these things are a lot more fluid than we ever thought we were, they were. And I thought when Custis Amanya came through, that actually allowed sport to realize that, you know, um, just having two, two versions of male and female with disabilities um, sort of uh, um, uh, spread around those as well doesn't really work anymore. And it'd be really interesting to see if that, you know, the first sorts of major sports who, who kind of do that and actually start to make a big deal of all that sort of thing. and um, and, and everything else. But, uh, yeah, I fundamentally believe that this is a reaction, um, to what happened in, in Canada, uh, w- with, um, Danielle. Um, and I think that she's, uh, retired her, her career, which of course, again, it's not really that she's retired her international career, right? Like her international career is just over, um, because of a decision by a bunch of people who, probably didn't spend as much time or effort um and you know they can talk about the science and everything else they haven't shown us all the details of that so all we have is a press statement um if the, someone from the icc wants to get in touch um and show me all the the information and how long they've been researching this but my my thought is that we finally had a trans player make it and they've made a uh, a decision off the back of that and th- i just don't think that's the right way for a sport of our size to be acting but unfortunately it is how our sport acts again and again and again. And one of the reasons that something like this annoys me is because it's no different. I mean, it matters a lot more to Danielle and to the players who are excluded, but it's no different than them not knowing that Kookaburra changed the ball, right? Which is, so one thing you've got people's lives that you're fucking with and the other one, you've just got a ball, but the ICC don't know anything, right? And, and part of it is the way they're funded and the way that the actual, uh, you know, this isn't, having a go at the ICC because I think they do a great job with the limited amount of funds that are actually given to by the major cricket boards. Um, but the point is that we have the second biggest sport in the world and too often these things are just thrown together um, and not done professionally, you know, in a haphazard way. We don't really run the sport in the way that it should be run. And again, uh, you know, in, in this case, um, uh, you know, there are Danielle, and I'm sure there are other cricketers who are working uh, their way through the system as well, who've had their hopes dashed. But as I said, it, to me, the human element is incredibly important. But getting things right, having a process, working your way through playing conditions, you know, working, you know, something like the zombie ball decision that we talked about, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, seeing if that is something that can be changed. Uh, the fact that we're going to have a World Cup final probably one day, knowing our, our luck, where um, a player flicks a ball for four and wins the game off the last ball, but the umpire gives them out LBW um, and they still lose the game despite the fact that they've just hit a four and no one's actually done anything to change any of that. There is an issue uh, and there are lots of issues within cricket that 
unfortunately are being um, presided over by older, out-of-touch people. And then there's the illusion of science and the illusion of planning. I can promise you that most decisions that are made by the ICC from people who've been in those meetings who've shared the conversations with me are just not professional. There isn't enough research put in. Quite often, when there is research that goes against the general consensus of the room, they will just go against the research anyway. Um, and this seems to me like another case where um, they, they, they got themselves into a sticky situation with what was happening in Canada. And so they came across, you know, they, they suddenly um, had been doing all this research about um, uh, trans women um, playing in, in their sport. As usual, with the ICC, I don't really buy any of it. Anyway, that's it for me on Uncovered uh, today. Baron will obviously be back uh, next week. In fact, he'll be on Footmarks in a couple of days. Um, uh, big thanks to everyone. Uh, it's been a bit of a weird week for me coming back from the World Cup, coming down from the World Cup. I do have a couple more World Cup pieces. I think uh, Cheyenne's working on one as well. Um, uh, Estelle's looking at uh, Meg Lanning piece as well. So we've got a few big things coming up. Um, but yeah, we're... we're with what happened in the World Cup, we've been sort of retooling everything. But over the next couple of weeks, there will be more and more shows that we'll be putting together um, and starting to, you know, get them right when we can. Uh, but a big thanks to everyone for supporting us. Like, subscribe. If you're on a podcast channel, honestly, one, oh, well, on a podcast channel, on a podcast app, one of the most important things is simply giving us a review, starring it, subscribing and all those things. Uh, but I'm Jared Kimbert. This has been the Uncovered Podcast and I will see you again in a couple of days for Footmarks uh, with Bayron. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orajoti Sainapayu and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Social media nightmares keeping you up after you turn out 25 minutes of gold on your podcast? It's time to wake up to Memento FM. They find the best designs for your posts, transforming your videos and podcasts into great social media posts. Join Memento FM today.